ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This episode of Ladies deals with narcissistic abuse and suicide. So if you're feeling fragile, proceed with care. There are some family violence resources in the show notes for you. Some names have been changed in this episode to protect the identities of people involved. In Greek mythology, there was once an extremely beautiful young man called Narcissus. He was out hunting when he caught a glimpse of his own reflection, which he'd never seen before, in a pool of water, and he fell in love with that reflection. Unable to leave, to turn away, or have his love reciprocated, he stared at his own image for the rest of his life. Why am I telling you this tale? It helps to understand the term narcissist. That story of a man who loved himself too much. And in this episode, we'll be splashing into the misery that is being in love with a narcissist. He really treated me well. He showered me with gifts. When he came to visit my family, he would shower them with gifts as well. Like He really wanted people to get a good impression of him. It's a common story. You're in the early days of a romance and a seemingly perfect guy is showering you with gifts, attention, taking you out for fancy dinners and generally just being obsessed with you. I was completely under the spell. I was in a pretty new situation. I thought here's one person who's really trying to connect and appreciated that. I really relished the idea of him just looking after me and taking care of me. He was easygoing and spontaneous. Fast forward and the gifts and affection have dwindled, the mood swings are intense and you're starting to feel like you're losing your mind. The gaslighting just ramps up into like exponential level and it just becomes like, oh my gosh, I've kicked the hornet's nest. I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about falling for a narcissist. The term narcissist gets thrown around a lot, perhaps even overused. But to simplify, it means a person with a high opinion of themselves, someone who is self-centred and someone who lacks empathy. Case in point, our guy Narcissus. They're the manipulative person in your life who's always angling to be the centre of attention and needing to be admired. And yes, women can be narcissists too. It's estimated that between a half and 1% of the population has been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. The challenge here being, of course, that narcissists are never in the wrong and hence never or rarely seek out therapy for that diagnosis. Narcissism is also on a spectrum. A person can have narcissistic traits of varying degrees. They often have jobs, friends, and they have relationships. We met at the airport in South Korea. I want you to meet Chloe. She was with her ex for five years. 
I was there on a holiday and he was there in transit to somewhere else. And we bumped to each other in the airport um, and we started talking, got really friendly. We exchanged Facebook profiles <laughs> and yeah, we didn't stop chatting from there. Oh, an airport meeting. So cute, right? For the first year, her ex, who we're going to call Michael, piled on the adoration. It was really good at the beginning. I really relished the idea of him just looking after me and taking care of me. He really treated me well. He showered me with gifts. We went to a few holidays together. When he came to visit my family, he would shower them with gifts as well. Like we would go to a restaurant and he would pay for everyone's bill. Like he really wanted people to get a good impression of him. Then the cracks started to show. When I moved to Australia to start the process of being his wife, I noticed that he didn't really have anyone in his circle that had known him for many, many years. And I also noticed that he would just cut off ties with people so easily. This new chapter of Chloe's life wasn't turning out the way she had hoped. And her new husband slowly started exerting his control over her life. Typical of narcissists, he was particularly concerned with outward appearances. Just started off just by really small measures of control and him wanting to show me off just to one-up everyone else. He always thinks that he's the smartest, most good-looking person in the room. And so he would ask me to dress a certain way, to look a certain way. He would buy me clothes and shoes, like the whole ensemble, under the guise of wanting to reward me for being myself or, you know, for doing a good job at something. But he actually just wanted me to look a certain way. But it didn't stop at controlling Chloe's appearance. He had this very particular thing about everything. He wanted me to, let's say, wash his clothes a certain way, wash the dishes a certain way. He wanted me to go to the gym with him and do the exact exercise routines as him. And I was okay with that at first because I used to go to the gym a lot and he packaged it in a way that he said, oh, I'm just going to be like your gym trainer and you know, I'll, I'll spot you. But eventually it became, I'll count the reps, I'll count the calories that you eat every day and how much weight you're lifting. What sort of tactics did he use to manipulate you? Whenever we get into a small argument, and when I say argument, it's not really like a back and forth. It's more like just a one-sided thing. Like, for instance, I wanted to to cook dinner, but he wanted to eat macas. And I would insist on cooking because I wanted to do something special. But he's like, no, 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 I insist on getting macas. And he could see that I was visibly upset. The next day, he would just show up from work with flowers or he'll just surprise me with a really nice steak dinner the day after. It's always a pattern of him doing something bad or us getting into an argument and then immediately following it up with a grandiose gesture. This might be a point in the relationship where many people might consider whether it was a bit too up and down to persevere with. But Michael was so charming and persuasive that Chloe got sucked right back in. Before she'd met Michael, Chloe was thriving. Back in my home country, apart from being a breadwinner, I was really growing into my 
career as a public relations professional. I had a big circle of friends. I had a very tight-knit family. I was this pretty successful, confident person. And I thought moving to Australia, being with this guy would just be a new chapter in my life. But the story didn't pan out like Chloe had hoped. Michael would punish her if she didn't do exactly what he told her. He would give me the silent treatment all day or he would not allow me to have dinner that day. Like there were direct consequences when I don't follow him. It got to the point where he was controlling Chloe's food, her exercise, when she could go to the toilet and what she was allowed to do outside of the home. She had no friends that weren't his. He would tell her one day to get a job and then the next day say he hadn't approved it. And at one point, he even stopped Chloe taking swimming lessons. He exerted the same totalitarian control over their sex life. I just didn't have the physical resource to accommodate his sexual needs. He typically wanted sex once a day or multiple times a day. I would just prepare for it mentally and be like, Okay, I'll just I'll just fake it until it's finished because if I refused, then I knew there would be consequences. He made Chloe do things that she'd never done before and that she was not into. I've never really experienced choking, but he started doing that and he really felt good about himself doing it. He also made me do certain acts that I wasn't comfortable with, but I really had no choice in the moment and if that's one way for me to be in his good side for the rest of the day, then yeah, sure, I'll do it. Because I don't want to be in the doghouse again for the next week or so. So, Chloe, it sounds like you're the frog in the slowly warming up pot of water. Yes. Things are getting more and more concerning, but it sort of feels a bit normal as well. Yes. Was there a point when you realised this is not good? So I started developing crippling anxiety it was just like really physical for me, just the the labored breathing and the brain fog. And I was feeling physically ill. Chloe went to a GP who referred her to a psychologist. And that psychologist, after listening to Chloe's story, ran through a list of narcissistic personality traits. She said, oh, my dear, you're being abused. Wow. And that was the light bulb moment because I didn't really recognized it for what it was. It was so gradual and it was so subtle at the beginning that when I showed up to see a professional, I was just a shell of myself. We're going to find out how Chloe's story ends a bit later on in this episode, but what we really want to know is, are all narcissists like Chloe's husband? And how the hell do we spot one before it's too late? A narcissist will quite often have a high need for admiration. Tamara Cavanagh is a clinical psychologist who sees lots of women who are in or have recently left a relationship with a narcissist. She's a bloodhound when it comes to sniffing them out. So sometimes that'll be objects or career or successes that they do, but you'll see quite a need and desire for admiration. They also can lack empathy, so they'll have very little concern for your emotions and your feelings and the impact of what they do on you. They can also tend to have an excessive self-centeredness, so their needs matter most. And usually if they're doing something nice, they're probably doing it for their own needs. 
That all sounds pretty awful. What draws women to a narcissist in the first place? It starts out with what people usually term as love bombing. So they're incredibly charming, they're absolutely lovely, you feel very special in their spotlight and they're incredibly good at that stage. It usually doesn't last too long. It's just like Chloe described. Once they've sucked you in, it's time for the next step of their process. And then they'll hit what's called the devaluation stage, which is where they'll throw in, in the early days, a couple of critical barbs. But as it goes on, they'll become very critical of you, things you do, and it can make you feel really, really low. Once your confidence is low and you're unsure of which way is up, it's time for step three. One of the final stages is it hits discarding. So this is where they deflect all responsibility for their actions They don't do that self-reflection that I guess you'll see anxious people do, which is where we really critique ourselves. You won't see as much of that. And they're not very happy for your success. So it'll be a very one-sided. And then they'll circle back to love bombing again. Why? Why do they circle back to that? Because the moment you pull too far out, so that discarding stage can make you quite anxious. But at the point that you're pulling a little bit further out, you've kind of given up, it's not feeling so good anymore they will then do everything to entice you back in. So you'll see the charmer come out and the whole cycle repeats. And if you call out the behaviour, it's likely that you'll be gaslit. You'll get a denying of reality. So if you're in an argument, you'll see that they will flatly deny something that they said or did. Even if you have clear evidence or clarity of memory about it, they will make you doubt your memory or your perception of events. And they they do it with such confidence that you will go in thinking you knew one thing and you will walk out having agreed to something and then wonder how you got there. Yeah. It's like being blindfolded and spun around, isn't it? They are so skilled at shifting blame onto others. Yeah. They very rarely look at themselves and they'll project those behaviours onto you. So it's your fault that they did what they did. If you're leaning into your speaker or turning up the volume on your headphones right now thinking, no way, there's no way my partner is a narcissist, except all this is sounding very alarmingly familiar. Well, if that's you, you need to know the difference between being a clinically diagnosed narcissist and just having some of the personality characteristics. So narcissistic traits, we can all do it at times. It's when we're perhaps a little bit more focused on ourselves, maybe a little bit more selfish, to put it that way, or more centred on our own success. And we all do little parts of that at times. Some people do it more than others and more frequently, and that's when you'd say they have high traits. But when it comes to that top 1%, it's incredibly dysfunctional. It's likely that they do very little empathy They are much more centred on themselves and very little happens outside of that. I have a bit of a sense of, um, even though it's not my fault, I have a bit of a sense of shame that I didn't unearth this earlier or deal with it earlier. Julia has been with her narcissistic partner for 28 years. A lot of gaslighting, so denying my experience of the world Also, conversation is always dominated by him, his experiences or his connection to anything that we're talking about. It's always got to centre back to him and it's like his way. Also can get really tied up in the minute details of things that don't even matter as a way of making you feel like you've done the wrong thing. 
And like Chloe, it's the frog in a pot of boiling water again. Over time, you don't realise that these little things are building up and they become like a wave eventually. Julia and her husband have kids together. He's one of those angry dads, right? So anyone drops a crumb or something like that, it's a big deal. You know, that's actually really shaming to the child. You, you don't actually need to do that. Dropping that sort of stuff is a mistake. Nobody intends to do it. Then the next thing is, no, you do that. You do that. I've seen you do that too. I've seen you behave like that. You know, they become the victim of my so-called attack. And it just becomes a very escalated thing where they use the big voice, and the big stomping around. As the years went on, as I've started to realise that, you know, I'd be up against it all the time, having these big arguments, trying to sort it out all the time. And then I realised it was a cycle. And then I realised kind of really crystallised things for me, like, oh, my God, this guy's like, this is a real thing. It's not just me or it's not my fault or it's not going to get better when, you know, he stops doing, you know, this drug or when he stops drinking or when he has a job or when his mum's okay or when his dad hasn't just passed away. There's no excuse. And despite his manipulative and controlling behaviour, she's decided to stay. What keeps me there is that I have a bit of a sense of shame that as a strong person, as a very knowledgeable and intelligent person, that this has happened to me. And I almost don't want to admit it to people that this is what it's really like behind closed doors. Julia's also quite scared of what might happen to her and the kids if she does leave and what her husband might do to himself. I have two children and I'm also have a fear of, you know, I know a lot about what goes on in these sorts of situations, that things get worse when you separate for some people. And there's been enough sort of unhinged behaviour for me to feel like if I do break up the family, if I do go out on my own, that it's going to become more manipulative. My children are going to be in the firing line. Julia says that while the kids don't want the upheaval of their parents living separately, they also don't really want to have to be alone with him for extended periods. While we're together, I'm always around and I'm trying to protect them and I wouldn't like to leave them, you know, two weeks a month not being around while that could possibly go on let alone what he might do to try and get back at me, you know, to manipulate them against me. Julia and her husband live more like distant roommates and co-parents than like a couple. She copes by disconnecting herself from his moods and his manipulation. I am quite distant. I sometimes live as though he's not there. So I'm in the house, I'm cooking the dinner, I've got my podcast going, my ladies in the ease or whatever. <laughs> you know, I just exist as though it's just me. Sometimes I don't meet his gaze. I feel like the happy ending for everyone is that the person leaves, but I'm not doing that. Julia, why is it important for you to share your story? Because I don't think I'm the only person like this. Like I grapple with it a lot. I grapple with this reality because it it's not how anyone really wants to live their life. Yeah, I would actually love a loving partner. That would be amazing. And maybe that's somewhere in my future. I don't know. But I think that, well, I I just want people to know that if they're also going through this, that they're not the only ones. And it's probably an acceptable situation to other people as well. What would be your advice for other women who are also in a relationship like yours? 
I don't think it's a nice way to live your life, mm. but you kind of have to deal with what you've got. I certainly have amazing moments of joy. Like I absolutely take every beautiful thing that happens in my life and enjoy it immensely. I love my children. I love spending time with them. They are just gorgeous people and my friends, beautiful things in nature. I just enjoy everything and I maximise all of that stuff. I think probably one of the hardest things for people is the impact on your children. Here's our clinical psychologist Tamara Cavanet again. A narcissist has often used the charm on the children and you can really worry about your relationship. Build a really good relationship with your children, get connected to them, focus on quality time. Is it something that a parent should be worried about when the other parent is a narcissist, how that might infect or damage the children? Any impact on what any child is exposed to, especially by such a strong role model in their life. But I do think there is a lot you can do. You can do appropriate parenting around teaching empathy, logical consequences, and also making sure that your love and your attention is not on success and admiration factors, but more on, you know, hard work and some of the other things that you really want to see in your children. Focus on the behaviours, thoughts and feelings that you want to grow in your child. And here's a glimmer of hope if you're in a situation like Julia's. So our research data tells us you only really need one good person in your life. If they are close enough and a good role model, they can take you quite far. It doesn't necessarily have to be two perfect parents. Tamara, have you got some other ways to cope and protect yourself from a narcissistic partner or ex-partner? Grey rocking is a communication strategy that is intentionally about you becoming emotionally uninteresting and not reactive to the other person. So it's typically done in order to not give them some of the rewards that might happen when you are interacting with someone who's narcissistic. Grey rocking is exactly what Julia is doing in her situation. Google it if you need, but it's a coping strategy for partners of narcissists where you basically have the outward appearance and level of interestingness of a grey rock. If you suspect you're being gaslit but you're confused and reeling, Tamara says take notes. Gathering your evidence in the sense of, you know, recording things that you know did happen, so notes um, and things like that, mostly because the hardest thing is you have to decide whether you want to stay or leave, whether this relationship's working for you or not. It can help to detach yourself emotionally. Take an outsider's perspective on what happened and build up a support system outside of your relationship. Definitely educate yourself on the patterns and on narcissism and the tendency to go through those particular behaviours, especially in an argument or a conflict. Biggest one that I don't see people do is to focus on long-term goals. What do you really want and can this relationship get you there? We get really caught up in how we feel on a given moment, but can this person actually be a true partner for 50 years, not just for this month? Let's go back to Chloe, the first woman we heard from on this episode. Remember, she met her fella at the airport. After seeing a therapist and realising that she was a victim of narcissistic abuse, she didn't leave immediately. Chloe made sure she had all her ducks in a row to keep herself safe before making the leap. 
My biggest advice is to keep your community close. Make sure you have your your own friends and keep communicating with them because they're your lifeline. And she has some gems of really practical advice. Have like a separate bank account. If you actually go to a bank and tell them your situation, they're happy to open a bank account for you and use an address that's safe. In my case, the address that they used to open my bank account was the bank's address. Find a safe place to go. So in Chloe's case, it was her husband's relatives who had clocked his controlling behaviour and understood that sometime in the future, she might need help. And have an emergency bag packed somewhere that he won't find with spare undies, copies of important documents and some cash. The moment that you decide to leave, make sure that you have the mental and emotional resource to not contact him because he will make sure that he will hoover your back into the relationship, love bomb you some more, and the cycle continues. Your survival is important and many people would want you to move past this and to actually be successful. Chloe hopes that by sharing her story, other women might recognise patterns in their relationship and take steps to help themselves. I can talk about this now without breaking down or crying. (laughs) I feel more open to sharing it because I know that another woman out there would, would learn from my experience. Also, I'm in a very healthy and happy relationship and that really gave me the strength to, to reveal my vulnerabilities as well. Having experienced a healthy relationship also made me see the high contrast between then and now, where I can talk to my partner about everything and anything without being judged. Ladies, as we wrap this episode, can we please take a moment to send out a dove of thankfulness to all the people who see a woman in need and offer her shelter or resources? You might not be in love with a narcissist, but you could be the safe place for a friend escaping one. And what a freaking privilege that is. Ladies, we need to acknowledge and encourage top-notch allyship. And if you are or you suspect you are in a relationship with a narcissist, firstly, you are not crazy. Listen to your gut and trust what you are witnessing. Look out for that cycle. Idealise, devalue, discard. And those red flags, the love bombing, the inability to admit mistakes, total absence of self-reflection and the shallow aura of loserishness, All those red flags that we ignore because we're like horny or or lonely or worst of all, horny and lonely. For more help and info, there are many communities of women on Reddit and Instagram. There are podcasts, there are books. It's a lot of experience with narcissistic partners. And you can also call any of the domestic violence hotlines like 1-800-RESPECT and Lifeline on 13114. I always imagined him as this really miserable old guy (laughs) who spent all of his money (laughs) and he would just end up being poor and miserable and sad. And I know it sounds really cruel, but that's my own way of thinking that, hey, I have the ability to find my own happiness and he doesn't. And that's enough, enough retribution for me. 
And in case you're wondering what happened to Narcissus, he eventually stared into that pool for so long that he turned into a daffodil. Really not my favourite flower, but a thing of beauty that you can compost when it's done. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Gundungara and Gadigal peoples. Ladies We Need to Talk is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. It's produced by Hannah Achelis. Supervising producer is Alex Lolbach. And our executive producer is Kyla Slavin. This series was created by Claudine Ryan. Good evening. I'm Helen Norville. And I'm Dale Jennings. And I'm Lee Sales. And I'm Lisa Miller. And we're so excited about the return of the newsreader on ABC TV. But even more exciting is our new companion podcast to the show. Season two of the newsreader promises more of the same newsroom power plays, complicated romances and general 80s goodness that made season one the ABC's biggest drama last year. This is a bullshit story. I feel like the way I love doesn't fit in anywhere. I knew that you were low, but I didn't think even you would stoop this low. If you're somebody who needs a debrief while you wait for the next episode, this podcast is for you. We'll talk about what's happening in the show, but also give you some context around the real 80s news events. We'll meet the creative minds behind the show and, of course, the stars. The Newsreader Season 2 starts Sunday, September 10, with this podcast dropping straight after the episodes go to air. Make sure you follow the Newsreader podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a thing. That's it from us. Back to you in the studio, Dale. I'm Dale Jennings. This has been News at Six. Good night, Australia. And we're out.